0: invite you to open your Bibles this morning with me to Matthew chapter 9, the last four verses of Matthew chapter 9, 35 through 38. We are concluding kind of a major section here in the book of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 10, we'll begin uh, the second of uh, five major discourses in the gospel of Matthew. So there's five major discourses in this gospel, five major sections where Jesus is doing an extended discussion. Uh, portion of, of teaching or preaching, and we're about to enter into that, but we're closing out a section here in these verses today. As you find your way there this morning, I want you to think about what is the, what is the hardest work you've ever done? Or when I say hard work or hard labor, what comes to mind? Maybe it's a, the job you work now. Maybe you work in a, in a foundry or something, and that's, that's hard labor. Maybe you grew up on a ranch or on a farm, and you know what it is to wake up before the sun? Um, voluntarily and to uh, milk cows or plow a field or whatever. Uh, Maybe for you, those of you who are athletes, maybe you think of like two-a-days, uh, for football players, or just hard practice, maybe legs day. I remember in in high school, and I was on the uh, the track and field team. I was, I was throwing shot put. I wouldn't really call it throwing, but anyway, we had the football coach was our was our our throwing coach, and like every Wednesday was legs day, and I hated I hated Wednesday because I couldn't. That meant I couldn't walk again until next Wednesday, and so. Uh, it was just terrible. Maybe, so, so, thinking about hard work, what's the hardest work you've ever done? Maybe for me, the hardest work I've ever done uh, was when my uncle enlisted me to go and uh, buck hay with him for his horses. So, he has several horses. And when I was in high school or college, a couple of times I went with him uh, down south to Las Lunas or Blen. And, uh, and he sent me scampering up what, what seemed like a hundred foot tall stack of hay. I mean, just bales upon bales. It wasn't really that tall. And he's like, Yeah, just throw them down. And I'm going, Okay. So, we worked all day, early in the morning until late afternoon uh, hauling hay, you know, probably 120, 140 bales. And to me, that was really hard work. I, I I, was sore in muscles I didn't know that I had, and I was finding hay in places I didn't think that hay could get. And and that was a hard day of work. I was sweating, and, and I was sore for a long period of time. That's labor. Right? We all have experiences of Uh, of hard labor like that. But here in the text this morning, Jesus is calling us to an an altogether different kind of labor. He's calling us to labor hard in prayer for the harvest, to sweat in prayer for the harvest. Here in this passage, we see that because there are Literally, innumerable people who are ready to be saved, innumerable people who are ready to hear the gospel and respond to it in faith and repentance. We who then have tasted salvation should and must urgently pray, labor in prayer to be sent out to bring in the lost to Jesus. Let's read the text this morning Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. Proclaim your word any week, any passage, apart from uh, the work and the power of the Holy Spirit in me. And so, Father, move me out of the way that, that you may use me to proclaim your word this morning. In our own hearts and in our own minds this morning, God, help us to put ourselves out of the way, that we might see Christ, that we might see the urgency of lostness in the world, that we might... Lord, as a response to your word this morning, that we might be moved to labor in prayer for the harvest. Lord, this is your time and this is your word. And we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. That we might not have hearts of stone, but hearts of flesh that are moved to follow you in faithfulness and obedience. God, you be glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. So as we work through this text this morning, we see three main points. First, in verse 35, we see a picture of a a perfect mission model. We have for us a perfect mission model here displayed. Verse 35 says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. This verse serves as the second half of what is called an inclusio. And for those of you that may not know what an inclusio is, it's just it's a literary device uh, where a certain phrase or, or, or an event or a turn of phrase or whatever is used in two different places to kind of bookend a passage that's in the middle. So chapter 9, verse 35 is the second half of this framing device for what happens in the middle. The first half should be familiar to us because it came several uh, uh, chapters ago in chapter 4, verses 23 through 25. And this is what Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 through 25 says. And compare this with <clears throat> Matthew chapter 9, versus, verse 35 as we read this. Matthew four twenty-three, And he and Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from uh, Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. These two passages, Matthew 4, 23 through 25, and Matthew 9, verse 35, like bookends, frame and and highlight the content in the middle. So what's in the middle? Well, chapters 5 through most of 9. Okay, the, the first of these, the first chapter four, the first framing device sets the stage for what is going to happen in five through nine. And then Matthew nine thirty five kind of rounds it all up. It's like I had a, uh, someone tell me once, a, a good preacher will tell you what he's about to tell you. He'll tell you, and then he'll tell you what he just told you. So Matthew's kind of doing the same thing. In Matthew chapter 4, he's he's telling us what he's going to tell us about. And then in 5 through 9, he tells us what he's going to tell us. And then Matthew 9, 35, he reminds us what he just told us about. Though it's very subtle, this is Matthew's way of emphasizing what happens there in chapters 5 through 9. And what happens there? Well, in chapters 5 and 7, you have the Sermon on the Mount. This, the first of these extended teaching portions, uh, extended teaching periods uh, in Jesus' life and in His ministry. Then in chapters 8 and 9, where we've been over the last several weeks, we have these, uh, um, these cycles of, of healing and exorcism and calls to discipleship, right? We've seen those over the last several weeks and, and seeing Jesus' lordship over all things demonstrated in those chapters, and so with Matthew chapter 4, verse 23 and 9.35, working like bookends for what's in the middle, we see these things about Jesus' mission model, about the kind of mission that he models for us, the kind of ministry that he models for us. First, we see that he is, like 9.35 says, a divine instructor, right? Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues. Jesus is a divine instructor, and this has been demonstrated for us in the Sermon on the Mount, As Jesus is preaching on the spirit of the law and this new kingdom ethic, the kind of living that that is supposed to happen when the kingdom of God comes, and the kind of living that citizens of the kingdom are to exhibit. Matthew 7, verses 28 and 29 says this, When Jesus finished saying these things, this is right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were astonished at His teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So Jesus, this divine instructor, teaches with the kind of authority that's greater than even that of the experts of the law in those days. And people are astounded by it. Jesus is a a divine instructor. His is a ministry of opening the scriptures to their full meaning. We can look at several places throughout the Gospels that demonstrate this, but one of of my favorites, and we'll look at it tonight uh, as we look at Luke in an extended uh, uh, portion, Luke chapter 24, verse 27, Jesus, after the resurrection on the road to Emmaus, meets with two of his disciples. <clears throat> and, uh, and along the way, he's, you know, they don't recognize him uh, in his resurrected state. Uh, but along the way... Um, thank you, brother. Uh, along the way... Excuse me. Jesus is asking them about what all has gone on. And they're like, what do you, what do you mean? You haven't been in Jerusalem lately. You know, there's this Jesus who we thought he was the Christ who's been crucified. And now some of the disciples are saying that he's, he's resurrected. And, and <clears throat> Jesus goes on to say, all of that happened so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. And then Luke chapter 24, verse 27 says, And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, that is all of the Old Testament, Jesus began to interpret all of scripture about himself. So Jesus' ministry is one of divine instruction, of of showing the truth of God's word. Secondly, Jesus heralds the good news of the kingdom, right? So he's a a teacher, but he's also a proclaimer of the kingdom. The second part of verse 35, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. As he goes through, the word that's used there for proclaiming, for preaching, is the Greek word caruso. It just means to herald as one from a king, right? Like a a herald of the king is a guy who stands on the street corner with a bell, ringing the bell saying, hear ye, hear ye, and he gives a message from the king. Only that when Jesus heralds the good news of the kingdom, he's he's not coming as a messenger of the king, and he's not trying to come to convince people of the coming kingdom, but he's plainly announcing with authority as king that the kingdom has come and is among them. So He's a herald of the kingdom. As king, He heralds His own kingdom. And third, as part of this mission model, we see that Jesus is a compassionate healer. Right? He's healing every disease and every affliction. We, we saw this a lot over the last several weeks in Matthew chapter 8 and chapter 9. Jesus, Jesus extending compassionate mercy through healing those who are sick, those who need forgiveness of sins, those who are demon-possessed. Jesus has healed the paralyzed. He's made the sick well. He's made the blind to see. He's stopped the bleeding of those who have been bleeding. He's raised the dead and He's exercised demons. And over those two chapters, Matthew 8 and 9, we, we're left to ask this question. Is there anything that this Jesus is not Lord over? No, He's Lord over everything. If He can heal sickness and He can forgive sins and He can raise people from the dead, He proves that He is Lord over all of those things. And, and even as Lord over all of those things, He, he demonstrates that in, a, in a just an incredibly compassionate way, laying hands on people who are unclean, touching the dead, having compassion for people that, that the Pharisees and the scribes had not. And so as we are reminded of what Jesus' mission looked like, what His ministry looked like, as we see His perfect mission model, we are reminded, we are encouraged, we should be challenged to make Jesus' mission our mission. As those who are following the king, we do what the king does. And if Jesus is one who instructs about himself from Scripture, if he's one who heralds or announces the coming of the kingdom, if he's one that extends, extends compassion and mercy to those that are hurting, well, then we who are citizens of the kingdom, right? those who are under the king, submitting to the king, we do what the king does. Particularly, we tell other people about the king. And we must do so. Romans chapter 10, verses 14 through 15. Paul says this about the importance of proclaiming the gospel. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Jesus was a herald of His kingdom. Proclaiming that the kingdom of God was among those people. But we too, we likewise, must be heralds of that same kingdom. Proclaiming Christ and Him crucified. That people may hear and believe and be saved. But preaching is not the only aspect of our mission, of our ministry as believers, as citizens of the kingdom. We also, like Jesus, have to extend compassionate mercy to those people who are hurting. Look at what James says in James chapter 1 verse 27. He tells the church, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. What does it look like to be a believer, to be a true Christ follower? It is to have compassion on those people who are in desperate need of compassion. To have mercy upon those who need mercy. And to walk in repentance, right? Being unstained by the world so that those who see our compassion might see Christ in us as well. Even in the Old Testament, though, right? This is not just a new covenant thing. This is not just a post-Jesus thing that God requires of His, of His people. Micah chapter 6, verse 8 says this. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. To be ministers of reconciliation in the name of Jesus Christ is not a new thing in God's economy, in God's kingdom. God has always wanted His people to express and extend compassion and mercy to those who are far from God and those who are hurting from the effects of sin and sickness and death in this fallen and broken world. And so we, church, like Jesus, must make His mission our mission, to proclaim the gospel and to extend mercy. Let's look at that mission just a little bit further, because Jesus kind of unfolds, or Matthew unfolds for us, a little bit of those things. So let's look at at the, the... the motivating factor of Christ's mission. We see in verse 36, this is a mission that is driven by compassion. A mission driven by compassion. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That's the kind of compassion Jesus has for these people. These crowds are all gathered around him. Like that of a shepherd for his sheep. Sheep without a shepherd are not good for anything. They can't hardly take care of themselves at all. And so Jesus sees that in these people, that they are harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd, not able to care for themselves. They need a shepherd. Though. The Greek word, this is the, only, this is the last time we'll talk about Greek this morning, I promise. And, and it's just because it's a cool word, okay? The, the word that's used for compassion here is the Greek word splankna. Say that with me, splankna. Now forget it because you'll never have to use it again, okay? Splankna, it, it, it means to have a, a deep, this is not just like to, to, feel, to feel sympathy for someone. Right. This word means to have a deep, gut-level compassion. It's like a compassion that comes from your kidneys. Okay, we, that, That's a weird thing for us in 21st century America, to think of emotions coming from our kidneys. But, but 2,000 years ago, in, in, in Jesus' area of the world, that's the way they thought about emotions, coming from the kidneys, coming from their, from their guts. It's this gut level compassion and affection, love or, or pity for someone. It's the same word that's used in Luke chapter 10, verse 33, to describe, in Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan, to describe the Samaritan's feeling toward the man who was beaten and left for dead on the roadside. He had plank enough for him. He had, I just spit when I did that. He had <laughs> compassion for this guy who was, who was broken and bleeding and left for dead on the side of the road. It's the same word that's used of the father of the prodigal son. In Luke chapter 15, when the father sees his prodigal son, his son who has taken his inheritance and squandered it and and, 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 uh, and, in foolish living, when that lost son returns home and the father sees him on the road, he has this kind of gut-felt compassion for his son who's coming home. This is what Jesus sees and what Jesus feels as he looks on the crowds that are around him. His compassion is for those who he sees that are harassed and helpless. Some of your translations may say distressed and dispirited or weary and scattered or confused and helpless. The people here are harassed. They are bothered. They are struck down by at least two things. One, sickness and death and sin in a broken world. We've, we've seen that on display time and again. I mean, people who are just suffering with stuff but they're also harassed by something a little bit more insidious even than that. And that is the the teaching that they've been subject to. The people have been harassed and dejected. They've been made helpless by religious rulers who were foisting upon the people the burden of unbearable and unbiblical laws and regulations. When you've got someone in religious authority telling you, you have to do all of these things to be righteous... And you know that you can't do any of those things to be righteous or right with God? How is there any hope whatsoever for a right relationship with God? And so the people are dejected. They're harassed by this kind of teaching by these self-righteous religious rulers who are telling the people, you'll never be good enough. And church, this is the world around us though. Even today, in 2016, people are broken by sin and sickness and death. We see it all the time. We have brothers and sisters in our body that are in and out of the hospital on sometimes a regular basis because of just ongoing maladies that, that they just struggle with because they live in a broken world where sin, the effects of sin make us sick. But there are also people who are being led us led astray and spiritually abused by the false promises of things like secular humanism and the prosperity gospel and the new sexual revolution. All of these promising happiness and contentment and purpose, but all of which are equally unable to deliver on those promises. All of them. Secular humanism has no promise of purpose for your life. Secular humanism says that you are the byproduct of random chance in the universe. So, cool. Cool. The prosperity gospel gives you no hope for any sort of really kind of good living because you can't ever give enough or pray enough or believe hard enough for God to really bless you in the way that you want Him to be blessed because you'll always have sin in your life. There will always be the effects of sin in your life. Your washing machine will break. Your your socks will get holes in them no matter how hard you pray, no matter how much money you give. And the prosperity gospel has no answer for that. The new sexual revolution potentially the most devastating thing in our culture in, in probably the last 15 years. I mean, the speed at which this thing has moved is just is, is unnerving to me in some ways. Well, not so much that I'm, I'm scared, right? I mean, God's in control. He's on His throne. But still, the, and it will leave. This new sexual revolution, this, this understanding that you can be whatever uh, gender you want to be regardless of how God made you, and, and regardless, of, and catch this, not that, not that how God made us is bad, how God made us is good. When we look at Genesis 1, God makes them male and female, and he, and he calls all of creation very good, right? And, and yet, we have, we have succumbed to this kind of thinking that we can do whatever we want with our bodies. We can, we can call ourselves whatever we want to call ourselves. We can do whatever we want to because we're in charge, well, the gospel tells us, no, we're not in charge. And when we try to be in charge, what we, what we reap is more sin, more sickness, and more death. Amen. And so as we look at the world around us, who, are, who the, the world around us is broken by sin, which is things don't work well, people get sick, people die with things like cancer. And we see a world that's, that's harassed by false teaching. Promising things that, that, that these philosophies can never deliver upon. We ought to not look upon the world with judgmental eyes, with, oh, you got to fix that. Right? Instead, we ought to look on the world through the, through the lens of Christ, right through these, these shepherd-shaped glasses, to see the world around us as hurting, as helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd and that's how Jesus sees them this imagery of of him looking at them like like sheep without a shepherd calls back all kinds of biblical uh, imagery to mind first your mind probably goes to psalm chapter 23 Right? Verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And Brother John Lodat preached uh, to us a really good sermon several weeks ago on Psalm 23 and how God wants to be a shepherd to us. That's how his, his heart is toward us. He wants to lead us, to guide us. He wants to lead us in paths of righteousness for his namesake. He wants to care for our souls. Maybe you think of Ezekiel chapter 34 verses 15 and 16 and then 23 and 24. There in that place, God through his prophet Ezekiel is chastising the wicked shepherds of Israel. That is the religious rulers who are exploiting the people of Israel for their own selfish gain. And God says to them in Ezekiel thirty-four fifteen, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Verse 23, God says, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. I've spent a lot of time here, and I'm tempted to, but I'll try to make this brief. Okay, Catch that in verses 14 and 15, God says, I myself will shepherd my people. And then in verse 23, he says, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them bear in mind that Ezekiel was written hundreds of years after David was already dead okay David's not coming back from the dead to shepherd his people so what is God saying are there two shepherds or are there one shepherd there's one shepherd and that one shepherd is Christ who is fully god and fully man right son in the in the lineage of David who is the shepherd among his people Matthew chapter 2 verse 6 Matthew reminds us of this he Quotes a prophecy saying, you, O Bethlehem, this is before Jesus is born, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people, Israel. He's talking about Jesus. And then John chapter 10, verse 11, and verses 14 through 15, Jesus himself uses this imagery of himself. John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. This is who Jesus is. God who, the Lord who is our shepherd is in flesh, in Christ, to be a shepherd to people who are hurting in a world broken by sin and led astray by false teaching. This is who Jesus is. And this is how Jesus sees people. As a shepherd who loves and wants to provide for his sheep. Christian, this is how Jesus looked upon you before you called on him as Savior. Before you ever knew Christ as Lord, he looked on you as a sheep in need of a shepherd. And non-believer today, brother, sister, you're here, you've never trusted Christ for salvation. You don't know Jesus as Lord, as Savior. You've not made him shepherd of your life. Know that this is how Jesus sees you today, right now. As a sheep. Needing a shepherd. And that's not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing. Good shepherds don't hurt their sheep. Good shepherds do what is good for their sheep. They lead them to water. They lead them to pasture. right? They pull them out of the jaws of wolves. Sheep, we need a shepherd. And because Christ is our chief shepherd, because He is the one who lays down His life for us, then we, in response, must see people the way that Jesus sees people. We must see people the way Jesus sees people, as sheep needing a shepherd. When you get home this afternoon, go on the Internet. Um, Y'all know what that is, right? Okay. Uh, And Google Google Enchroma glasses. Okay, E-N-C-H-R-O-M-A, Enchroma glasses. Some of you may know about this. These are sunglasses that have been designed for people who are colorblind to see color for the first time. And, and for, uh, for a person who uh, is color-sided, not colorblind, right? For you and for me. Uh, I don't know, maybe it's somebody in here is colorblind and you, you want to go get you a pair of these glasses. I don't know. Um, for a person who is sighted, when you put them on, all you see are like colors a little bit more like uh, vividly, I guess. But for the person who's colorblind, these, these glasses pull out the, the, the certain spectrums of, of light and make it such that their eyes can see the color that's there. And if you Google this, you can this afternoon you can watch a video of people reacting to seeing color for the first time through these glasses. And it's absolutely amazing. I mean, the people, they walk into a room, and in the room will be like this kind of installation uh, sculpture, right? Just, and it's just like neon-colored, all different neon-colored, like, thread, you know, just kind of all woven around and strung around through the room. Just really bright colors and everything. And people walk into the room, they are like, yeah, okay, yeah, that's thread. And then they put on these glasses, and, and then they, they have to pick their jaw up off the floor, right, and, and find something to sop up all of the tears that are just pouring out of their face because they're seeing color for the first time. It's always been there. They know there's always been color there. But when you see it for the first time, oh, that changes things. We church, we often are colorblind to lostness in the world. Okay, we, we know that it's there. We know there are people in this world who do not have Christ, who do not know Christ, who are going to die and spend eternity in hell, in separation and in torment, apart from God for all eternity. We know that, and yet we don't see it can't see it for how devastating it really is. We, like these colorblind people, we we need new glasses to see the world through. We need Jesus-shaped, Jesus-colored glasses to see the world through, that we might not just know that there's lostness, but that we might see the lostness, and seeing the lostness, that we might be moved to meet the need. Would that we would cry out regularly, God, open our eyes to see the urgency of the need for people to know the Good Shepherd. God, would that you would turn our stomachs with compassion, that you would give us that gut level love and pity and brokenness for the, for the barista who serves us our coffee each day, and for the young family next door, and for their children, for the homeless sister on the, on the corner of I-40 and, and Lomas who, who's been ignored by the world, for the politicians who seek and aspire to lead us. God, would that you would give us sight, spiritual sight, and a brokenness of compassion for the fervent Mormon missionary duo who's going to knock on our door this afternoon. God, turn our stomachs. Make us sick with compassion. For the loss that we might stop at nothing to point them to the good shepherd. The good shepherd who stands to save their souls, to give them true purpose for living, to care for them, to guide them, to comfort them. Do we see the world that way? Do we want to see the world that way? Christian, I say we can't, we can't but see the world that way. When we proclaim the name of Christ and we profess him as Lord and Savior, we can't but see the world that way. So Jesus' mission is a mission that's driven by compassion. But then also we see in verses 37 and 38 that with regard to the completion of this mission, much prayer is needed. Prayer is needed to complete Jesus' mission. In these verses, we read this. Then he said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Church, there is much work to be done. And Jesus says so. There is much work to be done. He says to his disciples at this point, not just the 12 who will be named uh, in the next passage at the beginning of chapter 10, but, but all of these people who are following him, several of them. He says to them, on the one hand, the harvest is great. It's a big, fat harvest. On the other hand, the workers are few. The Workers are few. And Jesus, looking on the crowds, seeing the enormity of spiritual need, looking at his disciples, he sees the scarcity of workers. And here there's a shift in imagery that's used, from sheep and shepherd kind of imagery to harvest imagery. Okay? And this, this idea of a harvest is used in the New Testament or occurs in the New Testament about six different times in six different contexts. Five of these contexts are in the Gospels. There's Matthew 9, our current passage, Matthew 13, Mark 4, Luke 10, which parallels the passage we're in today, John chapter 4, and then Revelation 14. All of these occurrences, except for the present one and the one in Luke 10 that parallels this passage, use the image of the harvest to describe final judgment, right? In that sense, the harvest is a harvest of souls at the end of time, wherein both the the weeds and the wheat will be gathered together and then sorted uh, on the threshing floor, right? And the wheat will be taken into the storehouse, and the weeds and the chaff will be thrown into the fire, right? So as to illustrate what happens in the final judgment, that is, Christ is coming again to judge the world and everyone in it, And those who are found in Christ, trusting in Christ, relying upon Him for all things, and especially for their salvation and forgiveness, will enter into eternity with God. Will enter into heaven, the new kingdoms, the new the new heaven and the new earth. But those who are apart from Christ, those who are represented by uh, the wheat and or the, the weeds and the chaff, are separated from the wheat, and they're cast into the fire, so as to illustrate the finality of judgment. That, that, that on that day when Christ returns, there is no changing your mind. What you've done with Christ on that day is what matters on that day. There are no appeals. There are no second chances. On that day, we'll all be held responsible for what we've done with Jesus. And those who have denied Him, those who have rejected Him, will spend on that day an eternity separated from God in a place of, of torment and punishment where God's wrath is perfectly and justly poured out on sinners who are apart from Christ in this place called hell. But here, when Jesus talks about the harvest, he's using it in a slightly different way. The intention here is not necessarily to point to the final judgment, although there is is some overlap here. There's, There's some stuff in common here. But rather, it's used to mark the urgency of the need for workers who, like their master, will work to bring people who are far from God into the kingdom. Jesus says, look at the harvest. Look at the need. Look at the number of souls that are ready to be saved. And look how few of us there are to bring in the harvest. The harvest is great, but the workers are few. There are few workers in this scenario. Jesus, in his eyes, physically, is weighing the enormity of the global harvest against his relatively few followers at this point and is saying to his followers, to his disciples, more of you are needed. More of you are needed. I am not meant to do this on my own, Christ says. So, what do you do? You pray. You pray. Jesus says, therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest that he would send out workers into his harvest. And here in just this very short statement, Jesus tells us how to pray, he tells us whom to pray to, and he tells us what to pray for. How does Jesus tell us to pray? Well, there are several words that are used to, for, for our English word pray in the New Testament. Like at least three or four different words that are used for pray. But here in this place, Jesus is using a word that implies a begging, pleading kind of prayer. Uh, knees bent, heart broken, head bowed, crying out to God for help for workers. It's a begging kind of prayer. My, my translation, the English Standard says, pray earnestly to the lord of the harvest. But that that doesn't quite doesn't quite get to I think the depth of the word that's being used there, right? Beg God, plead with God that he would send more workers into this abundant harvest. He tells us how to pray. He tells us whom to pray to. He says pray to the lord of the harvest to send workers into his harvest. God, the father, is sovereign. He rules, He reigns, even over the souls of people who do not yet know Jesus. And those persons who will be saved by faith in Christ and brought near to God already belong to Him as well. God is sovereign. He is Lord of the harvests. Those who are saved, we who are saved, and those that will be, are saved by God and for God. The harvest is not our harvest. The harvest is not my harvest. The harvest is not your harvest. It's the Lord's harvest. Jesus says so. And here in this passage, there is, I hope you caught it, a holy tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility in salvation. Okay, see this. The harvest is God's. He owns it. He controls it. He's sovereign over it. And yet Jesus instructs his disciples to pray. To beg, to plead with God that God would send more workers, more people, human beings into his harvest. Christian, God is the one who has saved you by his grace. But in his wisdom, he has commissioned and used in your life other people to bring you to that point of knowing him. And he intends to send you into the harvest to do the same. God is Lord of the harvest, but he has chosen in his wisdom to use us as workers in that harvest. And because God is sovereign, we can pray to Him, we can beg, we can plead for more workers with confidence because of His sovereignty. Pastor John Piper says this, We should take the new covenant promises of God and plead with God to bring them to pass in our children in our neighbors and on the mission fields of the world. He says, because of the confidence that we have in the sovereign God, knowing that He controls the harvest, that He's Lord of the harvest, we can pray with confidence—not things like, "Oh God, would you please just maybe help my, you know, lost friend to start thinking about spiritual things, and you know, maybe just maybe maybe start asking some questions about God." Right? We, because we're confident in God, we don't pay, we don't pray pithy little little "God, if you could" kind of prayers. No, we pray confident prayers. Like Ezekiel eleven nineteen, God take out of their flesh the heart of stone and give them a new heart of flesh. Like Deuteronomy thirty verse six, Lord circumcise their hearts so that they love you. Like Ezekiel thirty six twenty seven, Father put your spirit within them and cause them to walk in your statutes. Like Second Timothy two twenty five through twenty six, Lord grant them repentance and a knowledge of the truth that they may escape from the snare of the devil. Like Acts sixteen fourteen, Father open their hearts so that they believe the gospel. In other words, John Piper says, When you believe in the sovereignty of God, in the right and in the power of God to bring hardened sinners to faith and salvation, then you will be able to pray with no inconsistency and with great biblical promises for the conversion of the lost. That's who we pray to, that God, the Lord of the harvest. And then Jesus tells us what to pray for. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest, To send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus says, pray for workers, pray for laborers, and pray for more of them. Laborers are needed, Jesus says, who will take in the harvest, neither leisurely nor frivolously. That means not at a leisurely pace and not without intentional thought about what they're doing. Harvest is a work of timing. Too soon and you reap nothing. Right? Too late and the harvest rots in the field. But when the time is right, the work of harvest begins. And the laborers work hard to bring in the harvest in a timely manner so that it doesn't rot in the field. Jesus indicates that the time is right, right now, to work hard at the same work that he does. To proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. To exercise mercy that need that need mercy in a broken world. Jesus says now is the time. The harvest is plentiful, okay? The fields are white unto harvest. Jesus says, pray for more who will take sickle to stock to bring in the grain. Ask that God would send those who will bleed and sweat and cry for the joy of pointing others to the good shepherd. That's what we beg and plead God for. More people who will give their lives and their energy to take Christ to the world. He calls us to pray a prayer that rises to God out of urgent need. The need is for the, those that are ready to be saved to hear Christ. Christ. Jesus, who has this gut-wrenching, this stomach-turning compassion for the sea of people who do not know God, tells His disciples to beg and plead with God that He would send more workers into His harvest. We've got to have eyes to see it. We've got to have hearts that want to do it. We've got to not just pray it, but, but believe what we pray when we pray it, that God would send more workers into the harvest. Earlier this summer, I was uh, uh, making an attempt at, at getting in shape. And so I was, uh, started to run a little you laughing. I started to, to run a little bit. We live out in Ventana Ranch. So there's kind of a loop, you know, whatever. And so there's about a, a, a four-mile kind of track that, uh, or, or route that I'll run. <coughs> and uh, it was back probably in, in uh, late May, early June, something like that. On a Sunday afternoon, I came home. Girls went down for a nap, so I was, I'm going to go for a run. So I, I, um, I ran that, um, I put that in air quotes. Okay, uh, ran the four mile trek, got home, and I'm, I'm like, I'm still sweaty and like kind of cooling down, and um, and and I'm obviously not uh, the 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 epitome or paragon of physical fitness. So just imagine me in that moment, and um, and all I want to do is like get some water in me and um, and not die, and. And so as I'm drinking some water and not dying, the doorbell rings. And, and immediately I'm like, oh, it's ringing the doorbell. The girls are asleep. I'm going to lose my mind. You know, I don't want them to wake up from a nap. This is precious quiet time for me. And, um, and, and so I go and I open the door. And it's uh, two brothers in dark slacks and white shirts and ties and name badges on their, on their pockets, right? Two, um, two Mormon missionaries who are walking through the neighborhood and just going door to door. I say, hey guys, what's up? How's it going? I go, oh, we're good. And they ask me this question. They say, hey, we just want to know, <clears throat> do you know anybody who uh, who needs the good news of Jesus Christ today? And in my soul, I'm going, brothers, you. You brothers, let me tell you. Come into my house, let's sit down, let's have some coffee. Well, not coffee, but let's have some, I don't know, Sprite or something, okay? And and let's talk about Jesus. My heart is screaming that, and you know what my mouth said? Nope. I kid you not. I kid you I looked at these brothers in the eye who said, who said to me, essentially, Stephen, will you share the gospel with us? And I said to them, Nope. It gets worse. I told him I'm a pastor at a church in Taylor Ranch. Oh, God, help me. Oh, God, help me. In that moment, right, the harvest is plentiful and literally, literally on my doorstep. On my doorstep. Two brothers who don't know it, but are begging, share Christ with me. Share the true Christ with us. And what was my response to them? Nope. Oh, like... I think about Peter when he denied Jesus three times the night before his crucifixion. Like, I think that must be a little bit of what he felt like. You know, like the words are coming out of your mouth. And as you're saying them, you just, you want to bring them back. And ch- but you can't. And so this opportunity to share Christ with these two brothers that don't know the true Jesus, lost. Why? Because my eyes weren't fixed on Christ in that moment. Because I was more concerned with getting some water in me and not dying and my girls not waking up from a nap than I was about the state of their souls. And this church, this is not an excuse for you to go and do the same this afternoon. This is an indictment on me to not do in the moment what Christ has called me to do. And I will never, ever forget that moment. And I pray that God won't. Because the harvest is plentiful, but Yahoo's like me will let it go by without doing anything about it. Churches, we see the sea of people around us, the enormity of the need. We must, the people who are ready to be saved, we must plead with the Lord that He would send you and that He would send me and that He would send many others into this harvest. Many others. Because there are people who are lost and dying and going to hell apart from God because they don't know Christ today. Today. As of September 1st, 2016, the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention, so these are, these are current statistics, reports that there are 6,079 unreached people groups uh, in the world. That is 4.2 billion people in the world who don't have any more than 2% uh, popula- uh, population uh, uh, witness for Christ. 4.2 billion people who are unreached with the gospel. And of those 6,079, 3,051 are unengaged unreached people groups. That means they have no gospel witness. That means they have no church planter. They have no missionary. They have no Christians in their community. They're unreached for the gospel, and they're presently unengaged. And that number totals about 197 million. But of these 6,079 unreached people groups, 184 of them are here in the United States. 19 million people in the United States that don't have a consistent gospel witness in their life, in their community. In New Mexico, the Baptist Convention of New Mexico, by their uh, by th- their statistics, estimate that 82% of, of people living in New Mexico, that's about 1.6 million people, are not trusting Jesus for salvation. 82% of New Mexicans self-report that they don't have a relationship with Christ. That means that every year, church, 15,000 people in New Mexico die to spend an eternity in hell separated from God because they're not trusting Jesus. That means roughly, because there's 82% lostness in New Mexico, roughly every believer in this room should know at least four people who do not know Christ. Right? For every one believer, there are four non-believers in the world, okay? in your workplace, on your street. Just to demonstrate the representation of, of lostness, I want us to, uh, to do something this morning. so, As, as I uh, read through these things and as these apply to you, I, I want you to stand and remain standing this morning. Okay? And if more of these apply to you after you've already stood, just raise your hand as well. Okay, If you know people at work, if you have coworkers that you know for a fact do not know Christ, will you please stand and stay standing? Students, middle schoolers, high schoolers, college students, if you have lost classmates, friends at school, teachers, administrators that you know that do not know Christ, either stand or, or if you're standing, raise your hand. If you on your street know neighbors, people that live next door to you or across the street from you that don't know Christ, stand or raise your hand. Brother and sister, if you have lost family members, mother, father, mother-in-law, father-in-law, sister, brother, cousin, nephew, that don't know Christ, stand or raise your hand. Now church, look around each each one that is standing represents at least statistically at least 4 other people that don't know Christ church the harvest is plentiful and it is ready to be brought in the workers are so few so few so let us then pray fervently, beg and plead with the Lord of the harvest that He would send you, that He would send me to the lost people that just came into our minds right now, as we're thinking about this and standing and raising our hands, that He would send us into that harvest. Because there's this tendency to think that the harvest is just out there, right? It's just, it's just in, in, in China. It's just in Sub-Saharan Africa. It's just in India. It's just in, you know, now secular Western Europe. The harvest is out there. No, no church, the harvest is here too. It's on our doorstep. For those of us that have children and grandchildren, the harvest is literally sleeping in our homes every night. Every night. The harvest is plentiful, but the, the workers are so few. Brother and sister, if you're here today and you're not trusting in Jesus the way that these uh, other brothers and sisters around you are trusting in Jesus, you are part of that harvest. You are a sheep that, that Christ sees as one needing a shepherd and he wants to save you. So respond to Jesus in faith today. And if you don't want to come talk to me or to Bruce or Pastor Danny, talk to one of these brothers and sisters that's standing up around you. As I pray, the praise team's going to come and we're going to respond, but we're also going to respond uh, right now in prayer. So grab the hand of a brother or sister next to you. And we're going to beg, we're going to plead with the Lord that he would send more workers into His harvest from among us. And maybe as we're praying, every head bowed and every eye closed at this point, maybe as we are praying, you are sensing God sending you to these people. As the names of people that you know that are lost are coming to mind, pray for them specifically. But maybe God is also leading you to give your life, to plant a church, to go on the mission field. Maybe God is calling you to the global harvest. Respond to that in obedience and in faith today as well. Let's pray.